In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you are highly favoured, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favour with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favoured that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. A useful benefit of being a member of this church is uh, being able to, to use the church hall for your children's uh, birthday parties. Disadvantage is that you end up having a far more children than you would have had had you had it in your own home and uh, more space for them to, to go wild in. And uh, just need to make sure that when the parents come to pick them up that um, you're playing a game like Sleeping Lions and you give the impression that it's been all peace and order throughout the time that you've had them. And of course, your children enjoy it because it means they can have more children to their parties and more children, of course, equals more presents. And so as they look forward to the end of the party, they take home their presents home and they start to unwrap them. And they unwrap the first one, they put it to one side and they're on to the next one. And you have to say to them, well, hold on a minute, how are you going to remember who it was who gave you that gift? Uh, Go and get a piece of paper, get a pencil, write down who it was that gave it to you and what it was that they gave you, so you can thank them for it. Last week, we um, looked at the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were the recipients of the gift of a son, one for whom they'd been praying all their lives. And having given up all hope, because it was now humanly impossible, Elizabeth was past childbearing age, she was barren, God answers their prayer. 
And I don't need to see answer it with, with any old son, if you like. Their son is to be a prophet, a prophet who will point to Jesus himself. And the news is so incredible that Zechariah just can't quite believe it. And so the Lord makes him dumb until the birth. And the next episode in Luke's account, which we're looking at this morning, is out of another gift to another couple. And this gift is even more unbelievable. And yet it's received with a different attitude by the recipient of that gift, Mary. Her humble response is, as we said with the the children earlier on, she said, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. We're going to be looking at this uh, this story under three quite simple headings. Um, As with that present list, we're going to be looking at who was the giver? Who gave us the gift? What was the gift itself that he gave us? And what do we learn about the recipient of that gift as well in terms of our attitude as we receive God's gifts? Well, we're going to start with the giver. The giver is, of course, God. And if we were to look back to the opening verses of the Luke's Gospel in chapter 1, we see here that Luke's account of Jesus' life was written to, to help Theophilus and obviously all subsequent readers to, to know, it says there in verse 4, the certainty or the truth of the things that he had been taught. And by implication, through that understanding, to come to a faith uh, in Jesus Christ and to be saved. So each detail that Luke's write, Luke writes down here is important. Each detail is inspired by God. It's what God wants us to know. So what does this passage then that we're looking at this morning tell us about the giver, God himself, that is so important for us to know? We'll turn back there to verse 26. 26. And here it starts, in the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The first thing we see here about God is that it is him who takes the initiative. It wasn't the angel Gabriel decided to, to pay Nazareth a visit or happened just to turn up there one day. Uh, but God sent him. God sent him. I think there's only two angels mentioned by name in the Bible. This was a special messenger of God. He was sent by God. And what he was going to say to Mary was a special message from God. And of course, God's plan is, is perfect. It happens at the time he decides, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, at the place he decides in an insignificant small town in Galilee and involves the people he has chosen an unknown virgin named Mary and the unknown man she was engaged to, Joseph. But it's God who is the orchestrator of all these different details and the things that are about to happen. If we look at the words used to describe Joseph, we're given a small clue as to what else we will learn about God from this episode. Because God, here, uh, Joseph here is described as a descendant of David. And you might think, well, so what? I'm sure many of you were descended from famous people. And if you weren't, you can always pretend to be, start these uh, family rumours that your family goes back to to whoever. Apparently ours goes back to Captain Cook. don't know how much truth there is in that, but um, it's one of those things that carries on through the generations. But the Jewish people would have known the significance of being a descendant of David. I'm sure if um, you've been here on Sunday evenings, you will have... um, read this passage from 2 Samuel 7. If you could just turn to 2 Samuel 7. 
You'll find that on page um, 311. What we have here is God making a promise to David, 2 Samuel 7 verse 12. Let's look at this promise here and we'll see how that links in. It says, when your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He shall be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, as is common with Old Testament prophecy, it's it's often at two levels. There's the immediate and the future. The immediate prophecy to David is that your offspring will build my house, the temple. It's not going to be you who builds it. It's going to be your son Solomon. But from your offspring will come one whose throne and whose kingdom will last forever. Who will that be? Well, if you turn back to Luke chapter 1, just look at the words used here to describe this new child in verse 32. It says there, The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. So the Jewish people have been waiting hundreds of years for this prophecy to be fulfilled, for God to show his faithfulness to his people. And now, the, the, the coming of the Messiah is imminent. God is to demonstrate his faithfulness to his people. God is faithful, God is also powerful. The other thing it says here is that the angel was sent to a virgin whose name was Mary. And the significance comes of this uh, later in verse 34 when Mary, having been given the explanation of what is going to happen, that she'll be pregnant with the Son of God, she quite innocently asks the question, how will this be since I'm a virgin? You know, she's not naive. She knows what it takes for a baby to be conceived. And she knows that it's inhumanly impossible. And so the angel explains, the Holy Spirit, verse 35, will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she, who is said to be barren, is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. The Holy Spirit is able to overturn the laws of nature. After all, it was God who established those laws in the first place. So he should be able to to overturn them in his own power. And that's something that many people find difficult to grasp. It's not surprising, is it? And so people will find different ways to explain away the virgin birth. But the passage here says, look, look at Elizabeth. She was barren, but by a miracle, she became pregnant. Nothing, it says here, is impossible with God. And if we can't accept that truth about God, then we are denying a fundamental principle of who God is. That God is the all-powerful creator and redeemer. Nothing, it says here, is impossible with him. As the American pastor and writer John MacArthur said, he said, to throw out the virgin birth is to reject Christ's deity. It's to reject the accuracy and authority of scripture. 
and a host of other related doctrines are at the heart of the Christian faith. No issue is more important than the virgin birth to our understanding of who Jesus is. If we deny Jesus is God, we've denied the very essence of Christianity. God shows here his power. And if this is not incredible enough, then what do we also learn of God in this passage is also his grace. God is gracious. Why of all the women God could have chosen to be the mother of Jesus, did he choose Mary? You know, Mary was no one special. She was one of thousands probably of young virgins alive at that time. She came from an insignificant little town called Nazareth, probably no larger than Long Crendon at that time. And yet God chose to favour her. It says in verse 28, the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. It's not surprising that when he gives that greeting to Mary, she's greatly troubled, it says, or perplexed. She's wondering, what kind of greeting is this meant to be? What do you mean by that? What are you, what are you after here? And so the angel calms her down by saying, don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. That same expression again, you are highly favoured, you have found favour with God. And for us it may sound a bit like, you're in his good books, you know, you've, you've obviously done something to impress him. A bit like uh, the bloke on, on the restaurant, if you watch that, talking to Raymond Blanc and trying to get in his good books by using a bit of flowery language to describe the, the dish that he's concocted this week, knowing that that will resonate with Raymond Blanc. But for the God of the universe to find favour with someone, it's not down to anything we have done to ingratiate ourselves with him. It's that he has chosen to bestow grace on us. In the same way that Noah didn't deserve to be chosen to survive God's anger in the flood. In the same way that Israel didn't deserve to be chosen as God's special nation. In the same way that you and I, if we are Christians here this morning, didn't deserve to have God pour out his mercy and forgive us. Mary found favour with God. God demonstrated his grace to her. So what was this special blessing then that she would receive? What was the gift that God gave to her? Well, the gift, of course, was Jesus Christ. It's the gift of a child, and any child is an amazing gift in itself, but this is not just any child. And in just a few words, we are given some incredible information about who this child will be. Look at verse 31. You'll be with child and give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Let's just look at some of those descriptions of Jesus. You are to give him the name Jesus. This is not just God looking through um, the Collins book of uh, babies' names and coming up with one that he likes the sound of. One which isn't too popular, one which doesn't have any negative connotations. Now, the name Jesus has meaning. In Hebrew it was Joshua, it means the Lord saves. In Matthew's Gospel, the account is this more explicit. There it tells how an angel came to, uh, to Joseph after Mary had become pregnant. And the angel said to Joseph, she will give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. He will be a saviour. 
Secondly, he'll be great. He'll be the son of the Most High. Zechariah was told that his son John would be great, but he would be great in the Lord's sight. Jesus would simply be great because he is the Lord. When we speak of greatness today, it's, it's often to do with celebrity status. It's to do with achievements in sport or music or politics or whatever. I don't know whether you've ever aspired to, to greatness. I wonder if you've aspired to greatness in your children. But of course, human greatness fades, doesn't it? There are a tiny fraction of people who are remembered for, for very long after their death. People are in the headlines for a short while, and then they just fade away. And they have to try and do something desperate, like appear on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, to get back into the, uh, the papers and revive their careers. But Jesus' greatness would spread throughout the world, it would spread throughout time, it would last forever. Why is that? Because he's the Son of the Most High, he's God. He's of the same nature as God. The difference between Jesus the Son and God the Father is that Jesus the Son took on human flesh. He entered our world. And that is the amazing thing about Christmas, that God should stoop so low as to enter the world of the people that he made. And that Jesus will always be God and man. And thirdly, his kingdom will never end. I mentioned earlier that he will be given the throne of David, his his human ancestor. He will thereby fulfil the promise of God. But we said also that he will reign forever. What does that mean? What sort of a kingdom is this? Is this a bit like the, the United Kingdom? ruled over by our Queen, whose decisions during her long reign have been analysed this week in the drama series with five different actresses playing different parts of her life. Someone who takes her duty very seriously. But who is still human, who still struggles with the need to retain respect of her subjects, to to stay in touch with her people. Jesus' kingdom is very different. It consists of those who have willingly subjected themselves to his reign, who enjoy having their interests served by this servant king. All Christians are part of his kingdom. And whilst it's not a geographical kingdom at this time now, there will come a time when he comes and takes us to be with him, and we will be in a place where he will rule over us for all those who have accepted him as their king, a saviour and a king. This is the gift that has been presented to Mary. Let's take a look at Mary herself, the recipient. What does this passage tell us about her? The first thing it highlights is that uh, she is a virgin. Now, how significant is that? Well, obviously, she had to be a virgin in order to demonstrate that the conception of Jesus in the womb was not by a man. She conceived a child whose father was God. But it also shows that she was sexually pure, that she had not slept with a fiancé or any other man. And sexual purity is something that is important to God. Of course, not every woman in the line of Jesus was so pure. There was Bathsheba, the adulteress. There was Tamar, who seduced her father-in-law. Rahab, the prostitute. So sexual promiscuity, like any sin, can be forgiven by God. But there is a lesson to be learned here. God chose a virgin to be the recipient of his most precious gift. And virginity before marriage, however countercultural 
that may be in this day and age is important because it highlights the importance that God attaches to, to sexual purity and that sex is a gift to be enjoyed within a committed, loving relationship, which is marriage. But more remarkable here about Mary is her response to the angel's news. When the angel first appears to Mary and tells her she is highly favoured, the Lord is with her, her initial response, quite understandably, is, is perplexity. You know, what is, what is the angel about to say to me here? What is this news? It's like being presented with a present and you start to unwrap it to find out what is inside. And if the person is standing there with you, are you going to, to like what is inside? Or are you going to have to pretend that you like it? As a child, I was never a great liar. When relatives gave you those presents, they didn't really know what to get you. You opened it and they asked you, oh, I can change it if you want to. There's that split moment, isn't it? What do you say? The news that the angel gives Mary is quite staggering, as we already seen. I wonder how much of what the angel said would really have registered with Mary. You know, there was the obvious question, you know, how will this happen? You know, I'm a virgin, it can't possibly happen. But there would probably have been a whole load of other questions going around in her head. You know, what about Joseph? You know, what is he going to say? How is he really going to believe me when I say to him, look, I'm pregnant, but it's not by another man? What about, what about others? What are they going to say? You know, they'll accuse me of adultery. I'll be a social outcast. The rest of my life will be ruined. I'm not even ready to have children yet. You know, I haven't brought up a normal child. How am I going to know how to bring up the child of God? All these things will be going around in her mind. Or like Zechariah, before her, she could have said, how can I be sure of this? How can I be sure of this? How do I know that you're telling the truth? Prove it to me. But what Mary says, is, says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Just think for a moment how amazing those words are. She's saying, I don't really fully appreciate the, the enormity of what you're saying to me here. I can't get my head around how I could possibly become pregnant as a virgin. I don't know how my fiancé will treat me, let alone others. I don't know how I will live up to this responsibility that you're placing on me. And yet I do believe that nothing is impossible with God. I do believe that you are in control of what will happen. And therefore I willingly accept this generous gift. And surprisingly, Joseph doesn't believe her. But God sends an angel to Joseph. He speaks to Joseph and reassures him that actually she is telling the truth. Again, it's part of God's plan. And it's no wonder that when she goes to visit Elizabeth, Elizabeth says to her, at the end there in verse 45, she says, Blessed is she, Mary, who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. It's a faith here that accepts that we won't understand everything, but we don't need to understand everything. If we did, we would be God. But it's a humble acceptance that God will do what is best. And we see that later on as Jesus grows up. If you turn over to uh, chapter 2, have a look at uh, verse 41 in chapter 2. There's an episode here of how Jesus, when he's 12 years old, goes with the family to Jerusalem for the Passover. And at the end of the feast, uh, they lose him in the crowd and they go searching for him. Finally, they find him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers of the law, amazing them with his, his understanding. And uh, verse 48, his mother Mary said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Well, as Jesus replies, he says, 
Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they didn't understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. She treasured all these things in her heart. She didn't understand what he was saying to her, but she treasured all these things in her heart. What applications can we take away from this story for our own lives as we come to a conclusion? Mary was specially chosen to be the mother of God's son. It doesn't mean, of course, that she should be worshipped. After all, later on when Jesus began his, uh, his ministry as a man, he was told that uh, his mother and brothers had come looking for him. What he said at that time was that whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Yes, Mary has been given a special role to perform and has incredible faith here, but at the end of the day, she's still just a member of God's family. By his grace, as we all are, if we put our trust in Jesus, if we've received God's gift of grace. And that is the question I have for you. God has the amazing gift of his son for you. Do you want that gift to be on your list? Do you want to receive that gift? Have you accepted it, that invitation to be a part of God's family, part of his great plan for for mankind, to be a subject of his kingdom, to reign with him forever? And if not, what is... What is it that is stopping you? Is it the fact that actually you're, you're quite happy with your life as it is? You don't actually feel that you really need anything else? The time on this earth is minuscule compared to eternity. What about our faith? Mary trusts in God without fully understanding what will happen to her. How much are you trying to control your life? How much do you want to know exactly where you are going? How much do you seek to know every single detail and get frustrated when when you don't know every detail, when God doesn't tell you every detail of your life? Mary knew this news would change her life forever. She wouldn't have known exactly how. She wouldn't have known the grief that she would later experience in life when she had to see her only son crucified, well, not her only son, but one of her sons crucified on the cross. The grief of a mother whose son dies. And yet, she says, I'm the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Are we able to say the same thing to Jesus? Instead of worrying about what the future holds, are we able to get on and serve him now? We may have been a Christian for for many years, but do we still have that servant attitude that says, I will do whatever you want me to do? On your terms, not my terms, whatever pain that may cause me in the process, even though I don't know where that might take me in the future, I'm prepared to trust in you. Jesus is a friend, he's a brother, but he's also king of the universe. He will reign forever. And we are here to glorify him, and we're here to magnify him. Amen.